Good. The rain did not keep many of you away. I know, particularly in post-COVID era, rain is like you're like the Wicked Witch of the West. You're going to melt or something if you get touch rain. So appreciate you all coming. Appreciate those watching online. We have a lot to talk about today, so we're going to jump in. Last week, I mentioned that there are themes that come after Babel, the Tower of Babel, that become the main storylines of the Bible. And that once you understand these themes, you understand the Bible significantly, what's happening. Today, we will look at one of the biggest themes. In fact, many call it the second biggest theme in the Bible. Now, the theme will not surprise you, but the depths of the theme just might. So let's pick up where we were last week so we can get there. Now, for the next three weeks, we're going to hit these main themes. All of these themes run concurrent, so they run together throughout. So there are going to be times where there's stuff that could be said about a passage that would be better said on a different theme, even though we'll look at some passages that show the same thing. They run concurrent. The Lord is doing this all at the same time, at the same time. We're going to break these out and parse these out. My goal today is not to give you a comprehensive it's to introduce this theme. There will be a lot to discuss, but the idea is that you see the theme and then now have the tools to go study that theme as you see it play out throughout the Bible. So I'm not going to hit every single portion of where this theme is because it's too pervasive. But we will look at a lot. So let's start with where we ended up at the end of Babel. Genesis 11, beginning in verse 5. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower with the children of man that the children of man had built. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people and they all have one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from all over the face of the earth and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Now, we know from Deuteronomy 32 that it wasn't just him dispersing humanity over the earth, but he was also giving humanity over to uh, uh, cosmic powers of darkness. So we see in, in Deuteronomy 32, beginning in verse 7, we looked at this closely last week. Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father and he will show you your elders and they will tell you, verse 8 of Deuteronomy 32, when the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders according to, to of the peoples, according to the number of the sons of God, the divine beings. But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob. So last week we saw that Religions exist because God gave humanity over to cosmic beings and said, I'm going to begin again with a new people because these people know what I did to the last people who rebelled and still decided to rebel. So let's do this again. Third time's the charm. Today we're going to focus on two phrases and really parse them out. In Hebrews, in, in Genesis, when it says, and from there, Genesis 9, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. And then in Deuteronomy 32, when it says, he fixed the borders according 
to the peoples, to fix the borders of the peoples. To understand the Bible, we have to understand why land, why the promised land was so important to God and to Israel's relationship with God. The Dictionary of Theology, the Pentateuch edition, says this, land is an important theme in the Pentateuch and has even been described as the central theme of biblical faith. The theme is prominent in all five books of the Pentateuch and impinges on other main themes such as blessing and descendants. And Habel, which is a theologian, suggests that land is such an important and comprehensive symbol in the Old Testament that it could be ranked next to God in importance. So the question is, why? What is the deal with people and the land and God? What is the deal that this is such a big, major thing? Well, after Genesis 11, 9, the scripture takes a quick detour. It doesn't continue on. And then it picks back up in Genesis 12, where we know that God said Jacob will be my portion, pointing back to Abraham. So we see this in Genesis 12, beginning in verse 1. It says, now remember, in human history, Genesis 11 and Genesis 12 is 320 years in human history. So 320 years after God gave the world over to people and cosmic beings over different parts of the world, 320 years later, God says, all right, it's time. Let's begin. And here's what happens in Genesis 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Now, keep in mind, remember in, in Babel, they wanted to make their name great, and God says, you know what? I'm going to make your name great. Verse 3, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all families of the earth shall be blessed. This is God's introduction to Abraham. I want you to leave from the land that you are. I'm going to take you to a new land. It starts there. Why land, though? Genesis 13 Beginning in verse 14, it begins to escalate, this idea. And the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring can also be counted. Arise. Walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So here God is escalating his commitment and promise to Abraham to give him a land and people that will come from him that will take possession of this land. It's starting to escalate. We see this in Genesis 15, beginning in verse 12. Here's what he says, 12 through 21. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. And the Lord said to Abram, know, that for, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not, their own, that not theirs and their servants, there will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, and you shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation." 
for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So you see, he's saying, listen, the people that come from you are going to be in a land that's not theirs, then I'm going to judge that land and then bring them to this land where you're going to be buried. Why is this such an important theme in the Bible? Verse 17, when the sun had gone down, it was dark, and behold, smoking fire, pot, and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, 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 the Cabanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, all the ites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, the Jebusites, any other ites you feel like claiming. It keeps expanding. He wants to make sure Abraham knows that you and the people that come from you are going to be tied to a land where they will worship me. As the Lord continues to lead Abraham to the land, we see an increasing connection. So when we get to scenes like Deuteronomy, we hear this kind of language. Deuteronomy 3.18. And I commanded you at that time saying, the Lord has given you this land to possess. All your men of valor shall cross over armed before your brothers, the people of Israel. In Deuteronomy 11, 8 through 12, we hear this language. You shall therefore keep the whole commandment that I command you today, that you may be strong and go in and take possession of the land that you were going over to possess, and that you may live long in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers to give to them and their offspring, a land flowing with milk and honey. For the land that you are entering to take possession of is not like the land of Egypt from which you have come, where you sowed your seed and irrigated it like a garland of vegetables. But the land that you were going over to possess is a land of hills and valleys, which drinks water by the rain from heaven, a land that the Lord your God cares for. The eyes of the Lord your God are always upon it from beginning of the year to the end of the year. The language keeps escalating. So first it was, I'm going to give you land to Abraham. Your descendants will take possession of it. And then throughout the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Bible, this starts to happen. But then the language changes to now, I'm giving you the land, but you must take possession of the land. So it's not just here you go, it's you got to go to the land and fight against the people that are around the land in order for you to take the land. Why? What is this about? What is the deal with people and land? Why is this such a major theme in the Bible? And what does this land battle have to do with us and spiritual warfare? Everything. Everything. With us, I mean. The land has to do everything. Let me explain. In order to understand the, the, the reality of the people and the land and God, we have to go back a little bit. Remember I did a sermon called The Origin of Evil. In this sermon, I made this claim. This is what I said. I said that Satan's first attempt was not an attempt in heaven and then he was cast down to earth, 
but that his first attempt at the throne was actually Adam and Eve was on the earth. And I said in that message, if I'm right, if I'm right, it unlocks a major theme in the Bible and things start to make sense. Do you remember that? Let me explain why I said that then a couple months ago. In that message, we talked about what is Eden. Not the Garden of Eden, but what is Eden. We know what the Garden of Eden is, but it's the Garden of Eden. So what is Eden? Right? We saw from different passages that Eden is not the Garden because the Garden is of Eden, but Eden is the place of God's residence. In Eden, he talks about water coming out of Eden to water the garden and then, and then go throughout the earth. And we saw in different passages where in Ezekiel, where you see the old te the temple and you see water coming from everywhere. You see in Revelation 22, where the throne is waters coming from the throne. So Eden represents the presence of God. And then God creates a garden right next to where he is dwelling on earth. And this is where Satan comes. Satan comes into the garden and successfully tempts Adam and Eve to sin. We know the story so well that we gloss over some of the realities. Satan started a war with God by going after his people in a land where his presence dwells. Spiritual warfare started in the land, turning God's people against him. That's how it started. Spiritual warfare started in a land where the presence of God was and God's people were. In Genesis 3, after Adam and Eve sinned, God essentially, essentially lost humanity and Eden. It would no longer be a land of entry because of Satan and humanity it's now a land of exit. You can't stay here. You have to go. And this set in motion the pattern of the greatest, second greatest theme in the Bible. What we see first is after Adam and Eve sinned, we see in Genesis 3, 23 and 24, it says this, the Lord, Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He, was, he drove out the man, and at the east of the garden he placed the cherubim, a flaming sword, that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So the first thing that happens after they get their individual judgments is exile. You all are no longer allowed to be here. This is the dominant place of God's presence. Your sin puts you in exile. You are exiled from Eden. But the intrinsic connection between land and man and God remain despite the sinfulness of humanity. We see this in Genesis 4. We know the story of Cain and Abel, but listen to the, the dialogue between Cain and God after he kills Abel and God exposes, I know what you did. Listen to this dialogue in Genesis 4, beginning in verse 9. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know him. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground that shall no longer yield to you its strength, you shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. 
Behold, you have driven me today from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Listen to Cain's response. He has three concerns. Here are his three concerns. After saying, this is too much for me. The first thing he says is, you've driven me from the land. You're making me need the land. So Cain understood that land was important and the presence of God is connected to land. His second concern was, you have driven me away from the ground and your face I shall be hidden. So you're moving me from the land and from your presence. So even after Adam and Eve sinned, the intrinsic connection between people, land, and God is still functioning. And now his judgment is you can no longer be. You are exiled from the land, from my presence. And his third concern is, well, I'll be killed in the land. And God says, no, you won't. I'll put a mark on you, whatever that mark was. People was like, I ain't touching that. So by the time we get to Babel, God gives humanity over to cosmic beings that will lead them into wrong worship. He disperses human and divine to specific geographical locations throughout the world. This is what it means in Deuteronomy 32, verse 8 and 9. He says, when the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the numbers of the sons of God. That's a geographical statement. I am going to put this people with this God over here and this people with this God over there. And he put in motion wherever there are in the world and people are, there are cosmic beings over those people in geographical locations that God put in place. 320 years later, he calls Abraham and says, I want you to leave this land to go to a new land. God's creating a new people and giving them a new land, and it is subtly his first spiritual warfare tactic since Babel. As we know, the rest of Genesis focuses on Abraham, his family, and God's promise of land. But there's something else going on here. Why is this taking such a turn? When we get to Exodus, we see an encounter between Moses and God that we are overly familiar with. But let's see if there's anything else there that we can take from this in light of what we're talking about. In Genesis 3, Exodus 3, verse 1, it says this. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Oreb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. I love how they parse out the sentence. I just would have said, man, what is going on over there? When Moses, verse 4, when the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called out to him of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. This encounter introduces us to a new term, holy ground. 
Now, we're told by Moses, because he's writing this, that it was the mountain of God. But at this scene, it wasn't the mountain of God. It was just a mountain. It was the presence of God is what made it holy ground, not the mountain. It was God's presence. Wherever God's presence is, it's holy ground. In fact, it's impossible for it not to be holy ground. So when we take that and think back, the Garden of Eden was holy ground. Because God and God lost his people on holy ground. So God is reestablishing his people on holy ground. This conversation with Moses is the beginning of salvation for the Israelites, and it reveals the pattern of spiritual warfare. There is a pattern biblically of, to spiritual warfare. There's a pattern, and it exists today for us. It's the same pattern. Remember what started it. Spiritual warfare in Genesis 3 was a people, a supernatural being, and a land. Holy ground. This is how God responded at Babel. This people will be with this supernatural being on this land. This is how God responds in Exodus, reversing rebellion with redemption. With the people, a supernatural being himself, and the land. Holy ground. There is no spiritual warfare without land. There is no such thing, biblically speaking, as spiritual warfare unless there is a land. So the people in the wilderness are heading towards the promised land. But unlike Eden, this land is to be taken. So you must possess it, take possession of it, Take the land from the surrounding nations. This is the story of the Old Testament. God's people in the land fighting against other people and their gods in the land. So why does God say you must take possession of it? You got to fight to get this land. Could it be that Adam and Eve didn't fight to protect their land? And so now God's people, you have to fight to take this land. Adam and Eve didn't, but this people, you, have to fight. Land is connected to God, and this became the basis for Israel's identity with God. But what does this have to do with us? Everything. Let's stay where we are for a second. In Exodus 13, this is what Moses says right before they go across the Red Sea. Then Moses said to the people, remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery, for by a strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Today in the month of Abib you are going out. And when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this service in this month. So Israel initially begins with hope. And commitment. They're excited. They're freed from slavery. But then that hope turns to comparison and complaint. As they walk through the wilderness, a major scene happens. 
some a while ago, maybe months ago, someone asked me a question about Korah's rebellion. And they said, and I said, I ain't want to talk about it. And you guys laughed because you knew that, man. I was like, I ain't going to talk about it. Well, now we're going to talk about it. So here was Korah's rebellion. In Numbers 13, the Lord told Moses to send out spies to the land of Canaan. All right? So send out spies because, remember, they got to take possession of the land. You can have it. It's there. But you got to do what I said. You got to fight for this thing. After 40 days, the spies return and give a report about the land, and it's not a good look. Here's what happens in verse 25 of Numbers 13. At the end of 40 days, they returned from spying out the land, and they came to Moses and Aaron and all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told him, we came to the land which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of Negev. The Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the hill country. Now, remind you, God already told them these people live there. It wasn't like they was like, man, I thought this was, it wasn't like they was buying a house and they said, well, oh, somebody already lives here. I told you, you got to take it from there. No, these, he told them from the beginning, he said, look, you got to take it. And he named the people that are there. So they're giving a report and they should be like, yeah, we know. God told us already. Uh, that's, I would have been like, didn't he tell us that like on eight different occasions that Moses told him to tell us that? And so they continue. Um, verse 29, the, the Malachites dwell in the land of Negev. The Hittites, Jebusites, and Amorites dwell in the country, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. So listen to this. So God's taking them through a land, but on every way to go, people live there. And these people are not warriors. They spent 400 years being slaves. They don't know how to fight. That's why Moses fought and hit the Egyptian and then had to leave, because they don't fight. So now they're hearing this story. That's a good-looking piece of fruit. However... These people are warriors. They're killers. They'll destroy us. Verse 30, but Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Caleb is a gangster, if you don't know. <laughs> Caleb is a gangster. He's OG. He's a young OG. Then the men had gone up to him and said, we are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land they had, that they had spied out, saying, the land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who came from the Nephilim. And we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. So like these dudes are big, we're small, and we're, we can't beat them. The narrative continues in Numbers 14, verses 1 through 4. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or, that we had died in, or, or, or would that we had died in this wilderness? Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? 
And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. So these are people who watched God drive them out of, the, of, the, of Egypt, watched the Red Sea open up, close back on the Egyptians, and because they're not immediately getting what they want from God, they're ready to go back to a lifestyle without God. Man, that sounds like modern-day believers today on some level. But y'all don't want that today. That's not what we're at today. Fast forward to number 16. Now Korah, the son of Izar, the son of Koab, son of Levi, and Dathan, and Abiram, and the son of Eliab, and the sons of Peleb, the sons of Reuben, took men. And they rose up before Moses with a number of the people of Israel, 250 chiefs of the congregation, chosen from the assembly, well-known men. They assembled themselves together against Moses and Aaron and said to them, you have gone too far. For all in the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourself above the assembly of the Lord? Fast forward to verse 12 of number 16. And then Moses sent to Datham, Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and, and they said, we will, come, we will not come up. It is, a small, is, it, is, is it a small thing that you have brought us out of the land flowing with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness? That you must also make yourself a prince of us? Listen to the language. You brought us out of a land of milk and honey. God said, I'm bringing you to a land of milk and honey. So in their minds, the slavery was the land of milk and honey to them. And that's better than going to the land of milk and honey that God has already demonstrated that we can have. So when the proverb says a dog returns to its own vomit, it has just cause. That's crazy that all of a sudden, the slavery that you were into, now you see as better than your circumstances because God hasn't done or made it easy for you like you probably thought. Is that not a challenge of modern-day Christianity? This is harder than I thought. I'm going to go back to my old life. All of a sudden, that bondage becomes a blessing. It's human nature. God responds. Number 16, 25 through 35. Then Moses rose and went to Dathan and Abiram and the, leader and the elders of Israel, followed him. And he spoke to the congregation, saying, Depart, please, from the tents of these wicked men, and touch nothing of theirs, lest you be swept away with all their sins. So they got away from the dwelling of Korath, Dathan, Abiram, and Dathan and Abiram came out and stood at the door of their tents, together with their wives, their sons, and their little ones. And Moses said, hereby you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these works and that it has not been of my own accord. If these men die as all men die, or if they are visited by the fate of all mankind, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord creates something new and the ground, the land, the ground opens its mouth and swallows them up with, that and it, and with all that belongs to them, and they go down alive to Sheol, then you shall know that these men have despised the Lord. As soon as he had finished speaking, all these words, the ground under them split apart, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households and all the peoples who belonged to Korah and all their goods. So they and all that belonged to them went down alive in the Sheol, and the earth, the land, closed over them, and they perished from the midst of the assembly. 
and all Israel were around them fled at their cry. For they said, lest the earth swallow us up. And fire came out from the Lord and consumed the 250 men offering the incense. This scene alone shows the severity, showed, showed Israel the severity of the land, their salvation, and its connection and their identity to God. Coupled with God warning those going into the promised land that disobedience would mean the loss of the land, they would be taken to a different land and forced to worship different gods in those lands. Land is a major theme in the Old Testament. It is a major story of Israel being warned. When you go into the land, don't do this, don't do that. I'm disobeying God, and God punishes them. He said as much in Deuteronomy 28, 49 and 50. This is a part of, the, the part of Deuteronomy where he's saying these are the curses for disobedience. He says, the Lord will bring a nation against you from far away, from the end of the earth, swooping down like the eagle. A nation whose language you do not understand, a hard-faced nation who shall not respect the old or show mercy to the young. Fast forward to Deuteronomy 28, 52. They shall besiege you in all your towns until your high and fortified walls in which you trusted come down throughout all your land. And they shall besiege you in all your towns throughout all your land which the Lord your God has given you. So you see, the punishment for disobedience is you're going to lose your land and you're going to be taken by other people into their land. And here's what he says in Deuteronomy 30, beginning in verse 15. See, I've set before you today life and death, life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today, by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live in the land and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you were going over to the Jordan to enter and possess. So God has made it clear there is an intrinsic connection between a people, a land, and a God. Because this is how it all started. It was a people in the Garden of Eden, supernatural being, and land. And so now God is saying, to do spiritual warfare, I'm going to create a new people, put them in a new land, and I'm the supernatural being their God. But if you disobey me in the land, or you worship other gods, then you will go to those lands with those gods to the way he fixed the borders of humanity. But we know the story of the Old Testament. Israel couldn't believe it. They couldn't do it. But it was fundamental to the biblical narrative. That's why they call it the second greatest theme. But it wasn't just fundamental to, to the Israelites. Even non-believers understood the significance of the land. In 2 Kings 5, this is a story of Naaman the Syrian, all right? In 2 Kings 5, Naaman had, he was a, 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 a Syrian military commander who suffered from leprosy, skin disease, all over his body. And he hears about the prophet Elisha in Israel who could potentially heal him. And so with permission from his king, he travels there with some gifts 
to get Elisha's help to be healed. Now, when he arrives there, Elisha tells Naaman to wash in the Jordan River seven times, and he'd be healed. But Nathan was offend- Naaman was offended. I don't know if he thought the water was dirty or what, or if he thought it was disrespectful, but it was like, man, I've taken many baths. Right? Actually, when I get in the water, it itches, right? It might be that. But he's upset, and then he leaves, almost leaves in anger. But one of his servants persuades him to obey the directions. And so he goes and he obeys, obeys seven times, and he's miraculously healed of his leprosy. And listen to the dialogue that he has with the prophet. Here's what he said in verse 10 of 2 Kings 5. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and went away, saying, Behold, I thought he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not, are not Abana and Farpur, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the rivers of, of waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned away and went in a rage. But his servants came near to him and said, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. You know how when you feel when you get out of the shower and you put that baby oil on, you just be like, dang, dang. At least that's how I be feeling, dang. And then the next morning, it's like, dang, where's that ointment Joyce gave me? I need to put that over the elbows. So then it says this. Verse 15, then he returned to the man of God. Listen to what he says here. He returned to the man of God, he and all his company, and he came out and stood before him. And he said, behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. So accept now a present from your servant. But he said, as the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. Then Naaman said, if not, please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth. For from now on, your servant will not offer burnt offerings or sacrifice to any God but the, but the Lord. So why does Naaman ask for two loads of dirt, of land? Because he understood that the presence of God is in the land, and I'm going to a land where your God is not, and I want to worship your God, And I can't worship your God unless I do it on the land of his presence. So can you give me some dirt so I can go back so that when I'm there, I can worship the God of Israel on his land because he understood the intrinsic connection between land and God. And he did not want to be separated from God. So he wanted to take land with him. That's the theme a people a God, and land. But what happens in the New Testament? And what does this have to do with us? Everything. Everything. How does land play a role in the New Testament? Lexham Geographic Commentary says this, the biblical narrative... Authors often mention the place names in order to communicate a message of theological importance. Therefore, one must be careful with arguments 
that suggests that Mark, the Gospel of Mark, was confused or not purposeful in his writing. Instead, one should determine the possible geographic and literary significance of the description of the route. In other words, he's saying there's intentionality in why they're saying where Jesus went. And you're looking at the story and saying, well, how would he go from there to there? He's like, that's not how you read it. Look at it from what's the theological significance of where Jesus is going that we need to pay attention to. And he said, is it of vital importance that a reader of the Gospels pay attention to how geographic references are utilized by the author? As Shimon bar Ephrat states, places in the narrative are not merely geographical facts, but are to be regarded as literary elements in which fundamental significance is embodied. In the ancient world, authors strategically used, reused, and nuanced geographic references in order to impact the reader. The gospel authors were able to use geography as a narrative tool to inform their readers. So in the New Testament, land still matters, but it matters in a different way. Now, in the New Testament, we know that Jesus is the redemption. And if you know, when you ever think of redemption, think of redemption as rebellion reversal. Whenever you want to know, just redemption is simply, biblically speaking, rebellion reversal. Now, we've looked at this in other places, at the crucifixion, at the resurrection. We see rebellion reversal. Well, this is completely the life of Jesus. And some of these are obvious stories of how the land plays into this. We see this in Matthew 2, 13 through 15. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the, earth, till the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. So God, in spiritual warfare, God takes his people out of Egypt these people fail, so we're going to do this again. So Jesus is going to Egypt. Starts there. In Matthew 4, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to be taken to become loaves of bread. But he answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So after God brings Israel out of Egypt, he takes them to the wilderness, and they're complaining because they're hungry. They want bread. They want meat. And so he gives them manna from heaven, but they still fail them. So in the New Testament, Jesus comes, goes to the wilderness, but starves himself so that he's hungry. And then the first temptation that he's offered is bread. Rebellion, reversal. And Jesus is like, nope. I'm not that Israel. I'm not that Israel. Jesus made sure he was hungry so they'd be tempted to complain and get, get from God bread that wasn't from God. These are obvious narratives. I've already told you about in Matthew 16, Caesarea Philippi, where Jesus says, the gates of hell will not prevail over the church. Remember that? And I explained to you that 
when Jesus said that, that was literally a place where Canaanite gods in the Old Testament were believed. It was a literal gate. They were believed where Canaanite evil spirits came out of that gate. That was one of the strongest concentrations of satanic uh, pathway. It was a pathway. It was a literal gate. They thought it was a cave. So when Jesus said the gates of hell will not prevail, it wasn't symbolic language. They were standing in front of the gate of hell in their day and age. I told you about the transfiguration. A chapter later where Jesus is still in Caesarea Philippi goes up to a place that many believe to be Mount Hermon where the angels in Genesis 6 agreed to rebel against God and bring sin into the world in that way. And Jesus decides, I'm going to go to that mountain and I'm going to reveal who I am. One theologian that I, I love and appreciate this brother recently passed away, Michael Heiser, he said this, Jesus was picking a fight. He was, he was egging them on, picking a fight, because a week later, Jesus was killed. He picked a fight, they ramped up. We see these realities. But in the New Testament, Jesus doesn't seem to be communicating that there is a land, that, a physical land that Israel or the people of God are going to be at. He says language like this in Matthew 4, verses 12 through 17. Now, when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. So that was what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be filled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and a shadow of death on them, a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So what's happening there? Well, Jesus is highlighting lands, reading from Isaiah, that were talked about that the Gentiles are in, indicating that salvation is going to come from those in these lands. But instead of talking about people inheriting a land, Jesus says the land came to inherit the people. So he says, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I'm bringing the land to you. Now, there are particular places that are of significant importance, and some of these we'll see in the next two messages. Paul understands this reality. In Paul, one of Paul's most famous speeches, one of his most famous sermons, if you will, gospel calls in Acts 17, Paul understands this Dynamic. He understands a people, a land, and God. Here's what Paul says in, in Acts 17, verse 22 to 28. Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. So he, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. So you see, he's referring back to Babel. He says that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. He understands this reality. 
This is, he's thinking of Babel while he's talking to a bunch of people in their land, but he's talking about his God. Saying, I'm here in your land to talk to you about not your God, but my God. He understands the connection to a people, a God, and the land. This pattern continues beyond the scriptures, and it affects us to this very day. So how does this pattern affect us? What do we have to do with this? Is it that we're waiting for the promised land of heaven? Sure, but it's more than that. So what does this mean to us? Should we be focusing on Palestine and the Middle East? No. No. First, we have to remember who we are. Genesis 2-7. The Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. So Adam is made from the ground. He's made from the land. And it's a land where God's presence is. So Adam is made from holy ground. Which means all humanity is ground. Your land, I'm land. In Genesis 3, 17 through 19, here's what God says as punishment to Adam. He says, and to Adam. He said this to Adam. Notice he didn't say Eve had a different punishment. This is what he says to Adam. Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Right? In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Well, it makes sense that the ground was affected by their sin because they come from the ground. Psalm 103, 13, 14, one of my favorite passages. It says that the father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. You are land. I'm ground. That's where we're from. He knows we're only dust. But when we become Christians, something else happens. 1 Corinthians 6, 19. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. So he's saying, listen, the Holy Spirit is in you. The Holy Spirit is God. Ephesians 3, 14 through 18 says this. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant to you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love, intentional language, 
may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. Here's what he's saying. You, as a believer, now have the Holy Spirit within you who is God. And since you are land, then you are holy ground. Every believer is holy ground because the Spirit of God is in you. This is insane. In the Old Testament, it was the presence of God on the ground that made it holy. In the New Testament, it's God's presence in us that makes us holy ground. We literally went from dead man walking to <laughs> holy ground walking. If you are a genuine believer in the Lord, you are movable, holy ground. We are his people, he is our God, and we are the land. That is the pattern of spiritual warfare. A people, a land, and a God. We are his people, we are the land, and he is our God. We are holy ground. So why is this important? In the Old Testament, people are told how to conduct themselves in the land. In the New Testament, we are told how to conduct ourselves, but we're land. In the Old Testament, they are warned about being influenced by other nations and told not to worship other gods. In the New Testament, we are told, like in 2 Corinthians 6, 14, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? We're warned to be careful because we are holy ground. In the Old Testament, they had to wait for the presence of God to show up. In the New Testament, the presence of God has shown up and stays up. 1 Corinthians 15, 45 through 49. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is the first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. And as was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. So when you're not a Christian, you're just dust. When you become a Christian, you are, in fact, heavenly dust. <laughs> I could go on because it's so, but there's two other messages that run concurrent to today. But this is a big deal. It's a big deal about people and land, and God, because God made people from the land. This is why when sin comes into the world, land is affected, creation is affected. This is why there are warnings. The point is that we are the land, the people, and with our God. We must take care how we live in the land. Not in America, but in this land. We must take care how we live in this land. It's not about living in America. This is the land that God cares about. 
This is the holy ground that he wants to preserve. And this is the pattern of spiritual warfare. This is the pattern of spiritual warfare. I told you earlier there's no spiritual warfare unless there's holy ground. This is why unbelievers don't understand spiritual warfare because it only takes place on holy ground. So they just do stuff and live, and it's nothing to them. Like, what's the big deal? Why are we just going to the club? We're just doing whatever. And for you, there's a battle because this is holy ground. They don't have the spirit in them, so that's not holy ground. Spiritual warfare can only take place on holy ground. So if you're a believer and you're struggling, don't see that as a bad thing. See that as you are trying to protect holy ground. The world is not experiencing spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare is fighting against the enemy in the land. So we're fighting against the enemy in our land. Those people don't care. They mock us for not doing the things that they do because they're not holy ground. There's no spiritual warfare there. So don't take their cues on how to process your life. That's unholy land. You are holy ground before God. You got to take care of the land. Not America, this land. You are not holy ground if the presence of God is not in you. God's people are the land. And when his presence is in us, we are walking holy ground. That's why we take seriously our sin and stop playing. Stop coming to church for social events and joking around. This is serious. People have walked away and said, I don't want to be holy ground, and have gone back like Israel to Egypt. And people in here playing and joking around. This is not a game. Spiritual warfare is real. And it's happening right here. We are the holy ground. If you are a Christian. If you're not, then it makes sense to me why you're not tripping. It makes sense to me why you come to church laughing and joking, distracting people while they're trying to hear. If that's you, get out. I don't want no distractions while we're talking about God. Go somewhere else and joke around. Go out front. And here... God is talking to holy ground, reminding us, yeah. hey, take care of the land. Yeah. The consequences if you don't take care of the land. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And here's the funny part. I say God is intentional. I've been saying it this whole series. Here's the intentionality of God. Listen to this. This is in a book by Jay McCown called Land, Fraternity, Fertility, and Famine. Here's what he says. Land and people are portrayed in close, interdependent relationship. This is initiated when God, having already commanded the ground to bring forth vegetation, uses the soil as the material for the creation of mankind. Now, what he has here in parentheses that you don't know is when he says uses the soil, in parentheses is the Hebrew word for Adama. As the material for the creation of mankind, in parentheses is the Hebrew word for Adam. So Adam Mm -hmm. just means earth, man, Mm -hmm. dirt, land, A-D-A-M. The soil, the ground, is A-D-A-M-A. So even the original words in Hebrew Mm -hmm. are proving that they're one and the same pretty much. Mm -hmm. Adam, Adama. (laughs) God's intentional. 
We've seen the theme of language. We've seen the theme of why there are other religions and how Israel became God's people. Today, we've seen the theme of land. Much more could be said, but you just needed to get this is where it is so you can know where you're researching. But we've got a couple more to go. Next week is an uppercut. We step further with a different theme that's a major storyline of the Bible. And this will all make sense in the next two weeks. Let's pray. Father, I am no theological magician or unique or special. I just think and ask questions and look and try to find answers, and you always come through. Father, I pray that as we have seen that the pattern for spiritual warfare, it began by Satan going after God's people in the land and the supernatural being is at work. We see God reestablishing through Moses on holy ground, him as the supernatural being, you as a supernatural being, the people and the land. Now, them was the land of Canaan. For us, we are the holy ground that we must take care of and preserve and fight to protect. We're not protecting America or wherever else we live in the world. We're protecting, we're fighting for this land. We don't want to be like Adam who didn't fight to protect the land. Your word tells us what we call sanctification or being like Jesus is essentially fighting to protect the land, to take possession of it and own it, just like Israel had to but failed. Lord, I pray that there are varying levels of maturity in this room and those watching online. And I pray that there are some of us who, as your word says in Hebrews 5, we are unskilled in the word of righteousness. We don't know how to take the Bible and use it to grow. We get overwhelmed easily and we give up. And so we come to church to hang out afterwards and joke around. But Lord, I pray that you would help us to not do that, to take seriously our responsibility because it is an honor to be considered holy ground, to have your spirit in us. That's the point you're making. Why would you go into this situation when the spirit is in you? We are holy ground surrounded by a bunch of unholy ground. And not America as a country, but all the people who have yet to believe in you. So Father, I pray that you would help us to take seriously this reality and that unlike Israel of the Old Testament, we wouldn't fight to protect and defend and take possession of the land. That we would do the opposite and be like Jesus for your glory and our good. In your name we pray. Amen.